You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. something about the book of Ruth with its themes of God's providence and sovereignty in the midst of tragedy, his faithfulness and goodness in the midst of our questions and our doubts and our despair, his restorative hand as he brings beauty from ashes, remembering his promises, working all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The book of Ruth with its cast of tragic characters gives real weight to that verse from Romans 8.28, verse that's sometimes uttered too glibly, I think, slept on coffee mugs cross-stitched on pillows, but I think the characters in this story would give a hearty yes and amen to it because they've stared deep into the abyss of sorrow that is life only to come out on the other side into a flood of God's mercy and God's grace. There's also something I think about the way that the book is written that feels at once immediate and relatable. For one, it's dialogue heavy. Most of the book is comprised of these conversations between characters with little to no commentary on what's being said, whether it's right or wrong or justified or not. We have to infer character motivation based on what's here or in some cases what isn't here. But all the while we feel as though we have a front row seat at this drama, so we are listening in on the things in these people's lives as they unfold. And the scene between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, for instance, in chapter one, for example, we're meant to feel the raw emotion of their interaction. Their sorrow seeps from the pages. It's real and honest and heartbreaking. And though the details may be different, we all know what it's like to have these kind of conversations. I think that's partly why the book resonates with us. So on the relatability of the story, Tony Marita writes this. Most of us live in the book of Ruth, not the book of Exodus. That is, we do not gather manna from heaven every morning and walk through parted seas. We live by faith in God's ordinary providence. There are no miracles in Ruth, but that does not mean that God is inactive. We must never assume that a lack of miracles means that God is not at work. He is present in the lives of these seemingly insignificant characters, displaying his meticulous providence just as he is at work in our own lives. We're going to be exploring this idea of God's hand at work in today's passage. That is how God himself is the author of his own story. But before that, I just wanted to take a moment and briefly summarize where we've been at in the book of Ruth. Ruth tells us in verse 1, it's set in the context of the book of Judges, in the days when the judges ruled is what it says. And we know from the book of Judges, and for anyone else that's read it, this was not the best time for God's people. It was a dark time marked by widespread disobedience and unfaithfulness amongst the Israelites. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this seems an important detail of the author of Ruth to include, because the very next thing we learn is that there was a famine in the land. Going back to the days of Moses, God tells his people that if they obey him and keep his commandments, that he will prosper them, especially in their work. Conversely, the consequences of their sin and disobedience will result in punishment. God will then curse the land, and it seems that this is what has happened here. Bethlehem, which literally translates to house of bread, has no bread to speak of. To escape the famine, a man by the name of Elimelech, we are told sojourns with his wife Naomi and their two sons to the country of Moab, a land of foreign gods with a dubious history as it pertains to the nation of Israel. 
Elimelech dies early on in our story. His sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, but then they die, leaving the three widows to fend for themselves, and in Naomi's case, without anyone to carry on the family line. And then we read in verse 6 of chapter 1 that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So Naomi, while still in Moab, receives word of this, and she decides to return home to Bethlehem. She urges Orpah and Ruth to return to their families and remarry, and tearfully, Orpah does this, but Ruth clings to Naomi. She insists on staying with her, and so the two of them travel to Bethlehem together. Upon her return, some of the local women recognize Naomi, and they're all, hey girl, is that you? And she's like, yeah, it's me, but don't call me by my name, which, <laughs> Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, um, which translates to bitter. And uh, she is empty and full of despair, and it is in this condition that she arrives in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, it tells us. Well, Naomi doesn't see it yet, but God is on the move, and it is here where we're going to pick up the story. Um, I wanted to pray for us before we open God's word, and then we'll, we'll see what God is up to in this next chapter. Heavenly Father, I am weak this morning, and I thank you for your word, which nourishes us, which lifts us up, which reminds us that you are ever-present and ever-moving in the lives of your people, or that you are not just the God of this story, the God of Naomi, the God of Ruth, the God of the Israelites, but the God of us here and now. And that is good news, Lord. Your book points to the good news of the gospel, the redemption, the grace, the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that we would be reminded of that this morning, the ultimate good, Lord, that it doesn't matter what we're going through, Lord, that you have sent your son to conquer Satan, sin, and death, and that's the reality that we live in. So I pray, Holy Spirit, would you encourage us, would you lift us up as we open these pages, Lord, would we be reminded of all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so I'll share a brief story. A while back, this was about four years ago now, we had a bat infestation in our house. Um, this event has been well documented. In fact, I used it in a sermon illustration already. You can go back to the archives and listen to that if you want to hear all the grisly details. I won't unpack all of it now. But needless to say, it was, it was like a nightmare. Like all nightmares, they fade some over time and lose some of their potency in the daylight. But it was such a traumatic event that every now and again, my wife and I will still talk about it. It came up again recently. I'm not exactly sure why. But my wife said the question that came to mind when the bats invaded the home like some sort of Egyptian plague, was how. As in, how are they getting into the house, and how can we politely ask them to leave? The question that came to my mind was not how, I told her, but rather why, as in, why is this happening, God? <laughs> what are you trying to tell me? What are the spiritual implications of these bats? Is this a spiritual attack of some sorts? Did I do something I need to repent of? Probably, but I've messed up before, and no bats that time, so why now? I thought maybe perhaps this is just one of those things I could chalk it up to the trials and tribulations of living in a fallen world. That's a nice broad category to catch all of life's little mysteries and unpleasantries. There are a number of people who shared stories with us at the time that said they had bats in their home at one point too, which helped us realize it was more common than we thought and also helped us to feel less like freaks. <laughs> you feel a little like a vampire. But it's best not to probe too deeply into it, I thought. But on the other hand, what if this is not just one of those things? 
After all, this is the same God who sends storms after us when we try to run from him and giant fish to swallow us up when we hurl ourselves into the ocean and tiny little worms to devour plants that we love more than God's created people. Should we examine more closely then the events surrounding our lives through prayer and through the lens of scripture as well as the wise counsel of other brothers and sisters in Christ and consider the fact that God may be trying to tell us something and not like to make a huge deal of it at every little thing. Maybe I shouldn't be thrown into spiritual turmoil every time I can't find my keys, for instance, like tearing my robes, falling to the floor, like, God, why is this happening? Like, maybe I, just, I need to put the keys where they, they're supposed to go so I can find them. But also, perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to discount this idea that God might be using circumstances in our lives to get our attention. We've seen God's providential hand throughout the book of Ruth thus far. And in chapter two, we're gonna see more of it. In fact, to dismiss the details of this as mere happenstance would come across as perfidious and obtuse. And believe me, you do not want to be those things. I looked them up in the dictionary and they're not flattering. So anyways, we're gonna get into it. Uh, Book of Ruth, there should be a Bible in one of the seats in front of you if you want to follow along there. We'll also have the verses on the screen behind me. And we'll dive right into it. Picking up in verse 1, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. At this point in the story, we're introduced to a new character. Boaz is his name. The narrator has very intentionally and overtly submitted this piece of information to us. It is as if they're saying, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this earlier, but this cat Boaz, he's important. Remember his name. He's going to be in this later on. And suddenly we're made aware of something that our other characters are not aware of, or at least not thinking about. Because we know something that they don't, this creates excitement and anticipation about where this story is going. It reminds me of a conversation with uh, French film director Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock, and they're discussing this idea of building suspense by manipulating audience expectation. And they use an example of a ticking time bomb beneath a table. The camera tilts down revealing this fact to us, the audience. Meanwhile, the characters continue their meal, chatting along aimlessly, blissfully unaware that they're about to be blown to bits. And if for some reason you were at all under the impression that I was cool before, I have no doubt shattered the illusion with that last statement. Uh, (laughs) Turns out I'm just a big film geek, so sorry to disappoint you guys. Anyway, that's what's happening here. Not the time bomb, but we discover some important (laughs) details about Boaz. First and foremost, uh, he is a relative of Elimelech, the continuation of this family line. We also learn that Boaz is a worthy man, a man of character, a man of integrity, a man of both moral worth and material wealth, an idea that we're going to flesh out a little bit more later on in the story as well. But for now, I think we're meant to have this kind of giddy anticipation about where the story is going. First, the detail about the barley harvest, and now this It begs the question, is God working? Is God moving? Is there hope for our characters? Is there hope for us? I mean, if you've read the story, then then you know how it turns out. But even if you haven't, um, it's exciting stuff and stuff that, uh, that we should be excited about as we're entering into it. Moving on, we'll see more of this. Ruth chapter two, verses two through three says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
So a little historical context on this idea of gleaning. This again goes back to the law of Moses. Landowners were required to provide for people like Ruth and Naomi, the impoverished, the destitute, the vulnerable. God looks out for these people, he always has, and he charges those with power and privilege to do the same. We read in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And then in a similar passage from Deuteronomy 24:19, it says, When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. It's just, uh, God's law is really beautiful, isn't it? It not only provides for those in need, giving way to this idea that God's provision and providence in the lives of Ruth and Naomi began well before they were even born, but also gives the opportunity for those with an abundance to be generous with what God has given them. It doesn't belong to us. God provided it. And for those who obey, for those who are generous, further blessing is promised. It's just wild the way all this works. So Ruth asked Naomi's permission to go and glean, and given her status as a poor foreign widow whose entire family is in Moab, it would appear that she's more than qualified to do this. Naomi tells her to go, and again, all we're given is this sort of concise exchange between the two of them, but based on what's being said and what isn't said, we can infer quite a bit about where these two women are in our story, respectively. On the one hand, we see more of Ruth's noble attributes on display, not to get ahead of myself, but we'll also look at Boaz as a picture of Christ in today's passage and throughout the rest of the series, and rightly so, but it also seems fitting to look at Ruth in the same way. She demonstrates many characteristics that are Christ-like. Here we see her persistence, her steadfastness and determination, her fierce loyalty, her courage, and her humility. Not only does she ask permission to glean, but to do so in a field of one, as she puts it, in whose sight she shall find favor. Ruth knows who she is. She's not unaware of the ethnic divide that she's up against. And the narrator of the story is always quick to remind us as well. She's always Ruth the Moabite or Ruth from Moab. She's never just Ruth. She's a stranger in a strange land. And there's history between the nation of Moab and the nation of Israel. We'll take a look at Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, which provides a little context for this. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. Uh, sorry, I'm on the wrong one. Uh, I don't know. I'm lost in my slides here. Sorry, guys. Um, maybe I don't have this one, so I'm just going to have to read it. Um, no, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. When you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you, Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Remember him? But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. So it's a long time. You see, there's a lot of generational baggage Ruth is up against, not to mention the fact that she's a single woman with no family venturing out on her own. But she dares to hope all the same, and she steps out in faith that she might find favor, a word that is used several times in today's passage. 
and we'll talk about it more in just a little bit, but it would appear that Ruth is facing an impossible task and something that she doesn't have a ton of control over, whether or not she finds favor, but she's undeterred all the same. And while what Ruth is determined to keep moving, Naomi seems to be more sedentary in this passage. As an Israelite, as someone who knows the land and the people and its customs, it would seem that she might accompany Ruth on her gleaning expedition, seeing as she's vulnerable and all. But anyone who has experienced any of the stages of grief understands that just getting out of bed can be difficult at times. This is likely where Naomi is at, sad, depressed, sort of barely existing. So sometimes we need God's help, yeah. And in God's kindness, he has given her Ruth, who sets out to glean and just, just happens upon the field of Boaz. It's just one of those things, just one of those random occurrences. A bit of serendipity, she just happens upon this field. Or could it be, dare I say, the hand of God? <laughs> Maybe you require a little more data. So we'll go ahead and move on to Ruth 2, 4 through 7. Here you go. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So behold, right, as if on cue, Boaz saunters onto the scene. It's like saying, ta-da, or surprise, and here he is, right? Who's that man? That man is Boaz. I, kind of, I picture kind of this big musical number, kind of a choreography with the sheaves. They open up, Boaz comes in kind of thing. That's what I see anyway. And right away, we get a sense of the kind of man that Boaz is. Going back to the beginning of this chapter, the description of him as worthy seems more than apt here. The first words that leave his lips are a reminder of the covenant promise of God to be with his people, as well as the promise of the coming Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. These are Christ's last words to his disciples before his ascension. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The question has been raised throughout the book of Ruth, is the Lord good? Does he care about what I'm going through? And to hear Naomi talk about it, the Lord has brought me back empty. He has left me with nothing but my pain and suffering. It would appear that although she doesn't doubt the presence of God in her life, she is questioning whether or not his presence even matters at this time. Considering how things have turned out for her, does it matter whether he is with her or not? I think Boaz is the answer to this question because of what he resents for Naomi and Ruth, as well as all of redemptive history, his greeting of the Lord be with you is somewhat rhetorical here. More on the character of Boaz. Undoubtedly, we we're meant to see through him to Jesus, the greater Boaz, the redeemer of Adam's race. But Boaz is not just a metaphor. He's not just some allegorical character in a story. He's an actual person. And I think we're meant to notice how he conducts himself as a man of integrity. First of all, he establishes a culture in this workplace. This is how we're going to do business around here. And he starts by reminding his employees why they even have work. The grain, this harvest that we're reaping here, food for us and for our families, this has everything to do with God. God has blessed us, and let us not forget that. There's a certain uh, phrase my mom likes to use when she talks about 
changing the atmosphere. Um, and that could sound a little ethereal, like what does that actually mean? But I, I think I understand what she's talking about. It's this idea that as Christians, we are light and salt to a dark world that has lost its flavor. And as Christians, we can bring the love of Christ and living water to those who are thirsty. As Christians, we are meant to be a breath of fresh air to those around us. As an employee, I've worked in lots of different workplace environments, some where I was treated as little more than a cog in a wheel, or some where I felt the oppressive hunger of significance in the people, and it kind of rubs off on you, and you feel like you need to climb on whoever's in front of you to get ahead, irrespective of who you hurt in the process. And then I worked at places where I was seen, you know, as a human being, <laughs> where hard work was called out and appreciated, where work was viewed in its proper order with all of us subject to the authority and rule of God. That's what it's like here, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> and I could say that there's a palpable difference. I don't know about you, but I want to work in Boaz's field. It seems like the air would be fresher there. He knows his employees. He treats them with respect and they likewise revere him and work hard for him because he is a man who values their hard work. I don't know how many reapers he has working in his field, but he seems to immediately notice Ruth amongst them. This is not one in his employ, and he asks about her. I even think the report from this young man in these verses is telling. He seems to be taken by Ruth's work ethic, so much so that it comes across in his report. He tells Boaz she's been working hard this whole day except for a short rest. 75 in the auditorium, in case you want to know. Bobby just texted me. So. <clears throat> and now Boaz is intrigued. He goes up to her and he says these things. Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. These verses introduce yet another layer to Boaz's character, an even sharper contrast when you consider the culture that surrounds him. Here he insinuates that it's not safe in the other fields. These are dark days after all. God's people are not living by his commands. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And he's no fool. He knows what awaits a young woman, a foreigner, a widow with no family. Boaz is different. We're meant to see that. This field is like a little slice of the kingdom. Here she is safe from harassment and abuse. Here she will be taken care of and provided for. But she could have gone to any other field, right? She just happened upon Boaz's. It's like that line from Casablanca of all the fields and all the towns and all Bethlehem. Had, she had to walk in the mine, kind of thing. This could not be just one of those things. God is looking out for Ruth, He's protecting one who has sought refuge in Him. And this is Ruth's response, uh, my favorite part of today's passage. Ruth 2, 10 through 13 says, And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me 
and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. In the words of Tony Merida, when humility and grace meet, worship begins. We come back to this idea of favor again. Ruth is overwhelmed by the kindness she is being shown by this man, so much so that she falls down on her face in humble gratitude. Someone has acknowledged her. Someone has called out her pain and sacrifices. And Boaz tells her, I'm aware of all that you have given up, leaving your family and your country for all that you don't know. And he says, I see your faith. I see your good works. But even more than that, he tells her, God has seen it. God knows. And this God rewards faith. This God, the only God who is the God of Israel, the God in whom you've taken refuge, he sees you. Has this, um, has this ever happened to you before? Have you ever experienced something like this? Maybe there was a time when you were questioning your ability to parent your kids well, or if, if you had what it took to love your spouse the way she's supposed to be loved. Or maybe you made some decision, some change, and maybe you even felt like the Lord was leading you to make this, and then all of a sudden everything started to go wrong. And you wondered if you heard him correctly. Have you ever, ever felt so beaten down and weary by Satan? The world and your own sin, and then someone, maybe someone that you know, but maybe someone you've never even met before, but they speak into your life in such a way. They build you up and encourage you. And they say, I've seen what you're going through. I know this is hard. I've seen you fighting and clinging to the Lord. And they tell you things that maybe you don't even believe, but they see it. They say things like, they see that you're a good mother or a good friend or a good husband or a good wife. And their words don't really seem to be their own, but the words of an all-knowing, all-powerful God, a great high priest who understands all of our struggles. And it feels like none other than the kindness and the mercy of the Lord in those moments. And you feel just kind of undone by it. And the only appropriate response is Ruth's response, which reminds me of Psalm 8. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Who, who am I, Ruth asks. Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth that has no business being here. And this is true, but neither do you and neither do I. And, and yet we were invited in, no longer strangers, no longer enemies, but sons and daughters, such as the unmerited favor of God and Christ that welcomes us into this field of grace. What a story, huh? And if Christ has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, then this is your story as well. Details may be particular and unique, but you are a part of redemptive history, a history that looks beneath the surface to a God who providentially works behind the scenes in a mysterious way and often unnoticed ways in order to bring us to him. And he still does, he still does this. He is walking with you still. He is still working behind the scenes for his glory and our good. I think the book of Ruth encourages us to pay attention to these things, to notice where God might be moving, and to seek him for answers, to invite others in to pray for us as we're seeking these things as well. And to understand that we may never know 
exactly how or why certain things happen in our lives. I don't know exactly why the bats came. I have some feeling that had something to do with God teaching me something about the victory that we have in Christ and the need to call on community to help us eradicate evil from our houses. I think it had something to do with that, but I don't know exactly why. In the same way we have an advantage of a bird's eye view over the lives of Naomi and Ruth, we can see the beginning from the end, whereas they could not. However, I do think that the story shows us that we can trust him ultimately, that in the midst of uncertainty and suffering, he will give us what we need. So with that, we're going to continue to worship this God in a couple ways in the moments to come. We're going to take communion. Alex and Maddie will come back up and provide us with some background music. And you guys are welcome to come and receive of that anytime during that instrumental time or during the songs that will follow it. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, representing his broken body and shed blood for us. Christ our Savior, a symbol of the grace and unmerited favor we receive through his sacrifice. Be not, if you're not a Christian this morning, we ask you not partake of this meal, but you would come to God in faith and repentance, seeking refuge under his wings. And, and trust this, that if you are here, then you are here for a reason. The God of Israel, the God of Ruth, the God of Naomi is speaking, and this be, might be your moment in redemptive history that he awakens your heart and calls you into his marvelous light. And finally, we get to sing... To our God, it's what redeemed people do. Who are we that we get to do this? Let us sing from a place where humility and grace meet. That is where our worship begins. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.